Have you noticed how protective Bill Sullivan is of me? <laughs> well, hasn't this been a strange time? You know, normally uh, we have at my house four times a year, 40 to 45 people. I have four sons, a daughter, 11 grandsons, two granddaughters, five great-grandchildren, 22 great-grandchildren, and two great-greats. So you add all that with their spouses and we have 40 to 45 people at my house for Easter, Mother's Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. This year, none of that. <laughs> and on Christmas Day, it was Mark Garrett, Jim Garrett, <laughs> and because one of Greg's grandchildren had been exposed to COVID, Greg Garrett. So we just sat together, sort of. What a time. <laughs> and you know, really, this is really an unusual time always as we have Christmas just behind us and the new year just ahead. As I began to seek the Lord for what he wanted brought today, I, I thought, well, Lord, are you going to give me a word to guide us in 2021? But the more I prayed, the word that kept coming to me was, remember, remember, look to the past. And as I began to read the scriptures over and over again, many that were so familiar to me that had that exhortation over and over again, remember, remember, remember. One that we often hear uh, read prior to the Lord's Supper on Sunday is from Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, I want you to think about that. Did you listen to what that said? That's an exhortation to everybody in this room except the shoe packs because dear Dory is blessed with having coursed through his veins the blood of Jacob, the blood of Israel. <laughs> and so he was not distanced, not strangers to the covenants, but all of us now have been brought close to Dory. <laughs> Now, rather than be jealous of Dory, let's remember what Paul wrote in Galatians. All you who have been buried to Christ in immersion have put on Christ. And in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, he wasn't saying if you're a slave, you've got to get free. He wouldn't say if you're a woman, you've got to become a man. no. <laughs> We say who we are, but in the Spirit we're all one. What do you see when you look at me, a 90-year-old codger? But this 90-year-old codger is a mongrel. In my veins flows the blood of the Cherokee and the blood of the Irish through my mother. My mother's mother was Cherokee. Her father was Irish. His last name was Ennis, came from the county seat in Ireland, and originally was O. Ennis, meaning from Ennis, but later just Ennis. On my father's side, 
My grandmother, my father's mother, was full-blood Scott, descended from William Wallace, the last of the great Scottish chiefs, and Lou Wallace, who wrote Ben-Hur, was a distant cousin. So I have the Scottish blood. And then my father is an interesting story. In 1066, when the German Normans invaded England and won the Battle of Hastings, and they began to invade England and take over England. And the German language and the British language started to merge and evolve to what we now have English. My father's ancestors were a part of that Norman invasion. And the German name was Gerard. But as these two languages merged, it finally evolved into Garrett. And so I have... German blood in me. Do you see any of these things? No, you see Jim Garrett, mongrel. And from heaven, as God looks down on the body of Christ, that's what he sees. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. Praise be his holy name. Well, as I began to remember and think about the past, you know, I have a rather strange mind. And one thing that is strange about it is when I encounter a circumstance, almost immediately there's a verse of Scripture that comes, and with it a song, the lyrics of a song. And so as I began to hear these exhortations from Scripture, remember, of all things, this strange song that I heard the Gaithers saying, we have this moment today. <laughs> Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never come. But we have this moment today. And yet as I thought about that, the nature and the character of this moment is a result of yesterday's. The most immediate yesterday, of course, was what happened two days ago when we celebrated Christmas. Now, we say, where do we read about the birth of Jesus? Matthew and Luke. But, you know, John also addresses it in a way that's totally different from those other two. Here's what the Holy Spirit led John to write. In our ain hologos. Kai hologos ain pros ton theon. Kai Hologos was Hotheos Kai Logos. Then he wrote Hutos in Ain Arche Proston Theon. And then he wrote Hutos Ain in Arche Proston Theon. And then he wrote Panta Diatu. Ain Hologos, and he wrote in our two Pata or Panta in our two Hologos Genata, and then in our K Hologos in Ha Genomen. Now, what did those words say? Remember that the Gospel of John and the first letter of John were 
were written at a time that Gnosticism was starting to invade the church. And we'll not go into all the complexities of Gnosticism, but ultimately it said that everything that is spirit is essentially good. Everything that is physical is essentially evil. Therefore, Jesus could not have come in the flesh. You think you saw him, but you just saw a hologram. First John blows that out of the water. He says, we heard him, we saw him. And then the Greek word that is used there is the word used for a blind man who's fumbling something, tried to identify. We handled him. He wasn't a hologram. And he addresses that also in this prologue to the gospel. In the beginning was the word. And then the next phrase is a very interesting. The word was with God. Now, normally in Greek, if you want to say something is with something, you use the Greek word meta with a genitive. But John didn't do that. He used the Greek word pros with the accusative. And that conveys movement of some kind. If I'm Going to a village, uh, send someone to a village, Pimpo Pros Paulus. Pros has the idea of what on earth did that mean? <laughs> that this Logos was unto God. As I researched this use of the language in that form, I found an interesting thing. Any time that kind of language was used, it carried the idea of some kind of dialogue or intercourse or mutual exchange between two beings. We don't just have a logos, which was the word the Gnostics used for this being, who was just with God, but they were engaged with each other. There was some kind of exchange taking place. They are in this thing together. And then he said, all things that came into being came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, the Gnostics said, wait a minute, this Logos was created by a whole series of generations. John said, not so. In the beginning, he was with God. And everything that has come into existence came into existence through him. So he now clearly identifies this Logos, his divinity. And then in verse 14, he says, Kai Hologos Sarks Ein Geneta. And he says after that, Kai Eskeselsen in Hemin. And this word became flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us. The Gnostics are wrong. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Some years ago, Chuck Colson wrote an article which he entitled, It's Not All About the Manger. And he said, we have these scenes with little lambs and little children and a little baby, and we're so tender, all that. He said, wait a minute. What it's really all about is this incomprehensible thing that this word took off flesh. Think of that. 
and then dwelt among us. And here the interesting Greek term also, the word eskenosen means he pitched his tent among us. He tented among us. It comes from the word Greek word skene, which means tent. Now, that's a tent's a temporary dwelling. Isn't it? It's something you live in while you're passing through. He came and pitched his tent. And all of us are just traveling through. We're all just pitching our tent. And so that's what this Logos did. He became flesh and tented among us. What an amazing thought. Last Sunday, Bill Sullivan focused on Philippians 2, 6 to 8, and a portion of his sermon. And what a beautiful thing Bill brought forth. Let me remind you of what he said. This was first written to these folks saying, listen, you guys shouldn't be proud and think you're better than anybody. But he said, let this mind be in you concerning Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God and did not consider equality God with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a slave and then it says he appeared in the likeness of men and then humbled himself to the and obedient to the point of dying, even death on a cross. And as Bill pointed out, there, the words here are extremely important. I think it's very unfortunate the way most of our Bibles translate this because the word that we see form is the word morphe. And the underlying idea of morphe is essence, not outward appearance. And so this one who had the same essence with God, the same morphe as God, this one who John said made everything that ever came into existence, who was having this inner reaction with the God, you know, we have the two beings. This particular one had that essence, but he humbled himself and gave up that essence and took on the essence of a slave. That did not mean he lost his divinity. A man might be a king, and he might have a domineering wife, and at home submit to that wife, but he's still the king. And Jesus, this the second member of the Godhead, gave up all the prerogatives he had as God and took on the prerogatives of a slave. And then the next word is interesting. He had the appearance of a man. The Greek word there is schema, which means that's what he looked like. That's his outward form. But he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. That's what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas. That this one who was God submitted himself, humbled himself, and took on the role of a slave, even submitting to the point of dying on a cross for your sins and mine. Yesterday is gone, and tomorrow may never come, (laughs) but the moment I have today is what it is because of that yesterday which we celebrated two days ago. So I began to remember and think about the past. Here's the next one. Last Monday, the 21st of December, was the 400th anniversary 
of the pilgrims setting foot in the new world. Now you've heard me sometimes say that to me I see God playing chess. This is really an example of that. The colony of of Jamestown, the small community of Jamestown, Virginia, had been a British colony for some time. The British were getting money from the tobacco being shipped over, and tobacco for the first time was being introduced into Europe, but the colony was struggling to exist. But the British were constantly sending ships there with supplies. One British ship, the sailors, after they discharged their supplies, kind of started to go north on the coast just to see what it looked like. At one point they went ashore and encountered some Indians. And they captured them and took them to Spain to sell them as slaves. One of these was a teenage boy. We would know him as Squanto. I'm not going to say his Indian name. It's too hard to pronounce. (laughs) But they came to be called his name after that by everyone was Squanto. Squanto was really a brilliant young man. He listened to these sailors. He began to learn a bit of English. And when they got to the port of Spain, we don't, I don't know how, I've never been able to find any explanation. He escaped and made his way all the way north and across the English Channel to Britain. And he developed greater skills in English, and because of that, the Newfoundland Company hired him. They were sending ships back and forth to the New World, and they thought, Having a a man who's an Indian who can speak English, that'll really be a help. So they sent him on a trip to Jamestown and then back. And then they sent him on another trip. This time he said, I'm not going back. And he stayed. And then he started the long walk north back to where he had originally come from, where he had grown up. And to his sorrow, his entire tribe was gone. They had all died of a plague. Now there was a neighboring Indian tribe. He went to them and they developed relationships and accepted him. And so that's where he began living. Well, in England, Henry VIII, as you know, had broken off from the Roman Catholic Church and formed the Church of England. And in the Church of England, almost all the aspects of Roman Catholicism were still there. And so some leaders in the church said, really, we need to get away from that. We need to purify the church. There are too many abuses. These were the Puritans. But some of the Puritans said, we need to go further than that. What was the church like in New Testament? What was the early church like? And these separatists then began to not not at all participate with what the state church wanted. And so they were harassed. They were fined. They were jailed. And some of them finally said, let's get out of here. (laughs) And so they went to the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, they had tremendous freedom to worship God. But after 11 years, they realized everything wasn't what they had hoped for. They saw their children being drawn away into the world they were in which they were living many of the teenage boys ran away from home and began sailing on dutch ships and so they began to say what can we do we're not going to go back and start worshiping god the wrong way we must be faithful to the revelation we see in the word 
And so they said, let's try the new world. Now, some of them were still back in England. And they went to a financier, and this uh, financial company thought, well, this would be a chance to really invest in the new world, and we can make some profits. And so they funded their voyage. They were initially going to go on two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. But just before time to sail, the Speedwell was determined unseaworthy. There's some evidence some folks bored holes in the hull to, to do that. And so those who could crowded onto the Mayflower. That a very difficult journey. There were so many of them. They got sick. They ran out of water and drank seawater, which made them more than sick. And they had planned to go to Jamestown, but there was winds that blew them the other way. Actually, one severe navigational error, and they were far north. Where were they? Well, they were in time what we now know as Cape Cod. And they said, well, here we are. We're totally away from the jurisdiction of the British. British law won't prevail here. What will we do? So they had a meeting and wrote what we now know as the Mayflower Compact. And in that compact is that people will not be our ruler because of the divine right of kings or because they've been appointed by a king, but we will elect our rulers. <laughs> And so they voted and elected their first governor. And then they went ashore, December 21st, 1620, in the very beginning of a harsh New England winter. Now, Dallas can tell us how harsh New England winters are. <laughs> and having experienced them myself here, I, I don't know how true it's too, but true, but folks in New Hampshire told me that historically, if you died in November, you didn't get buried till burying day the following spring because they couldn't dig a grave. The ground froze six feet deep. Can you imagine that? So here these folks arrived sick in the midst of a horrible New England winter. Now, Squanto's tribe, for if they had been wiped out, had buried some corn in the ground, hoping to use it during the year. And these pilgrims found that. Corn was kind of strange to them. That was something for America, not in Europe. But they figured out it was something they could fix. They fixed it and ate it. But, of course, they started running out. Half of them died. Only 52 people survived. Spring came. What are we going to do? <laughs> Then one day, into their midst walked this big, tall Indian speaking English. <laughs> you talk about God playing chess. <laughs> and he befriended them. He said, I will teach you how to catch fish the way we Indians do. He taught them to plant corn and put fish in with the corn so that would fertilize it. He helped them negotiate with the tribe, and they became great friends, even made a treaty. If somebody attacks you, we'll fight on your side because we're now together as one. And they flourished. The Indians brought food. They flourished, and they had their first Thanksgiving that fall. The harvest said they had reaped. The Indians brought deer meat. They had a great feast. They had athletic contests, and they also gave thanksgiving to God. 
Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow will never come. We have this moment today, but I'll tell you this moment I have today would not be what it is if these people who love God and His Word had not been willing to pay the price they paid, whatever it cost to be faithful, that's resulted in their coming to the new world. You know, God had a reason for the establishment of this nation. He played chess to make it possible. After a century or so, many colonies had been established. Finally, there were 13. And the British treated the colonists like slaves. They abused them. They mistreated them. They sent things to America, charged them heavily for that, taxed them terribly. You know, the old idea of taxation without representation, that's really what they experienced. A group of uh, people had a nonviolent protest in, in Boston on the square, and a group of the British soldiers slaughtered all of them. You know the story of the Boston Tea Party, in which they went on board and threw tea overboard, the these protests. Finally, the colonists said, we've had enough. And they wrote the Declaration of Independence. You read that and you see God present in it, don't you? How could these ragtag soldiers from the colony, farmers, merchants, blacksmiths, Defeat the British. The British at that time were the most powerful nation in the world. They had the best equipped, the best trained army. No one could defeat the British. How do these Americans, who really are not military people, think they can beat the British? Not only that, there were some in the colony who were British sympathizers. One such family lived in the woods in northern Virginia. And the man was out walking in the woods one day, and he heard in the distance a man's voice. He wondered, what's that? He stealthily approached and saw a tall man on his knees praying and imploring God. He realized that was George Washington, the enemy. <laughs> he went back home and said to his wife, Honey, we're done. A man who prays like that can never be defeated. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow will never come. But today, the day I have is because of the past. And when you read the Constitution of the United States, you see God. God had a reason for establishing this country. God brought forth upon this continent a new nation dedicated to the principle that all men are created equal. Now it took centuries for that to be reality, didn't it? Abraham Lincoln formed a new political party, he and others, and that party, one of their goals was to make sure that the nation was united and those who were seceding would stop it. That resulted in the Civil War in which more Americans were killed than any other war in the history of the nation. 
But at the end, slavery was outlawed. Today, it is against the law in America for anyone to own somebody else. But of course, after that, we had racial prejudice. We had the Jim Crow laws. I'll tell you, I grew up in that culture, and it was horrible to me. I don't know why, but very early on, the Lord, I believe it was God, began to touch my heart about the plight of the blacks. As a boy, I had a pretty good childhood. I had my own horse. I developed skills with the bow. I had an English long bow made out of lemon wood with a walnut handle. I had a Cherokee, or rather Choctaw flat bow made out of bow dark. I developed the skills with a slingshot. I threw hatchets and knives. One skill I developed was with a bullwhip. Now, with a bullwhip, you have to have the right wrist action if you do it, but you swirl it over your head, and then with the right wrist action, you made the popper exceed the speed of sound, break the sound barrier, and it pops. (laughs) One day, I saw a member of my family coming up the front steps carrying my bullwhip. I didn't even know it was gone. And I noticed the popper and the end was stained red, probably with mercurical. This man was running in a Democrat primary for a county office. I said, what are you doing my bullwhip? I've been making a speech. What are you doing my bullwhip? He held it off. He said, I said, if you elect me, this is what we'll do to those blankety-blank niggers. Oh. I cannot tell you how that hit me to hear words spoken like that. But then my bullwhip had even been used for such a thing. I thank God for Martin Luther King and the peaceful protests and those after him. Today, there is not a politician that would dare get up with a bullwhip and make a statement like that. I'm thankful that I live in a country today where even though there might be racial prejudice, there always will be fallen human nature, but legally, not so. The day I have is a result of the yesterdays. About... uh, 30 minutes ago, as I looked to the past, we had the Lord's Supper. Think about what that is. Remember Jesus Christ said to the apostles, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He said, We're two or three are gathered together in my name. There will I be in the midst of them. And Hebrews writing about Jesus, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Think about this. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, he is with us, I believe, with an intensity that we know at no other time. 24 hours before his body was placed in the grave. He was in the upper room with his apostles, his disciples, 
They were celebrating the Passover feast, and they took the unleavened bread and said, All of you eat of this. This is my body. And then later on, he took the last cup and raised it and said, All of you drank of this. This is my blood. When I, by faith, hold in my hand that unleavened bread and that cup, by faith, I'm holding Jesus. Think of that. I can bring to the Lord my sinful self and know I'm forgiven. I can bring my heartaches. I can bring my pains. And he is there. He is there. Days are filled with sorrow and care. Hearts are lonely and drear. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Calvary, Calvary, burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. Troubled soul, the Savior can see every heartache and tear. Ah, but burdens are lifted at Calvary. Calvary, Calvary. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. Aren't we thankful that that's true? Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never come, but we have these mo- this moment today. But this moment that I have today is a result of yesterdays in which my God has been involved. Praise his name.